Welcome to The Lever's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike. And Ian. And we are reading through the Patrick O'Brien Aubrey Matron novels. Ian, we're up to chapter seven in the Commodore. Bring us up to date, please. With great pleasure, Mike. Thank you. So last time... Stephen and uh, Reed had rejoined the squadron aboard the Ringle as the squadron was in the midst of great gun practice. Stephen and Jack had then had that really great deep conversation about jealousy and about Jack's relationship at home, had hopefully put Jack on track to resolve what seems to be his separation from Sophie. Stephen, meanwhile, had been concerned about the operation coming up for the first lieutenant, Lieutenant Gray. This time, Mike, Jack and the squadron are for sure heading for Africa. Jack's going to get to read his secret orders and wonder a little about what Stephen's thoughts are. Stephen's considering what to do about Captain Duff. Jack finalizes his plans after momentarily setting up as a political cove, you know, and has his first encounter at sea with a slaver. Nice. Sounds great. Yeah. So, Mike, uh, why don't you take us to the start line? What's going on here as we open up the chapter? Yeah, well, Ian, you said that, you know, we're thinking about Stephen being so concerned about Lieutenant Gray's operation, this removal of a bladder stone, and we start right there. Gray had had great fortitude during the surgery, steady voice. He thanked Stephen at the end of this operation, you know, with no anesthesia, and everything looked really good, but a deep infection finally took his life, and he is buried at sea. And it, all this yeah. happens, you know, in a matter of a couple sentences. So, you know, a bit yeah. of an ominous note to start the chapter and kind of consistent with O'Brien's writing. This is the kind of thing that would actually happen at that time. And Jack and Stephen are always real people, not, you know, typical literary not heroes here. But yeah. Yeah. I have to wonder, is, is there any kind of omen or foreshadowing going on here? Sometimes when we have these little, <laughs> yes, it's pointing us somewhere. I'm, I don't know where this one might be taking us. Oh, Mike, I, I, I can only guess. So let, let's see then, Mike, what the chapter holds. Now, all of the squadron is sailing pretty well together, apart from the Thames, who can't keep up. We'll have to hear more as, as the chapter goes along about how the squadron's hanging together. Jack attributes this problem with the Thames not to its hull, not to the hand's activity, but he says to the absence of anyone in authority who understood the finer points of sailing. So we're talking about the commanding officer here. Thankfully, the crew of the Thames is learning to fire the guns faster, but not much more accurately than before. It's not all bad news, though, in the squadron here, because Jack's delighted with how Captain Smith's 20-gun Camilla and Dick Richardson's 22-gun Laurel are shaping up. They each had many of the virtues of the surprise, being well-crewed and nimble and very, very willing to learn and to learn fast how to do gunnery to a high standard. Jack tells Stephen that the glass, the barometer, is shot up. This means a storm is coming and we get a little rehash of one of our favourite old jokes. In the last dog watch, Jack stops to recall Stephen's joke about the dog watch being curtailed. And Jack goes on and expresses the hope that maybe we've crossed the 31st parallel. And if that's the case, then I can open my sealed orders in the hope, says Jack, that there'll be more for this big squadron to do than, as he calls it, just skirmishing about for a parcel of miserable slavers. 
Stephen observed, well, perhaps the miserable slavers might be worthy of consideration too. And Jack says, well, I wouldn't want to be a slave myself, but I do remember Nelson's assertion that if you abolish the slave trade, and then Jack's little intervention here tails off because he remembers that this is a point that he and Stephen don't agree on. And Mike, in, in other times earlier in their lives, this could have been the flashpoint for a bit of an, uh, an argument between these two guys, but they're more mature now, right? You're absolutely right, Ian. They, they are a little more mature as we've ridden with them over time here. And, and in that vein, Jack goes on saying that, you know, Stephen should not think that Jack is discontented or ungrateful for this splendid command. He says he's thought, uh, reflected, pondered. And Stephen says, Jack, you, you've grown prolix here. <laughs> You're using way too many words. And, and Jack catches himself. So as you say, yeah, this is you know a reflection that they can speak to each other plainly now, and yeah. Jack explains that the squadron, you know, in his mind, is just too splendid for this mission alone, this slaving mission alone, and he doesn't like the way the Admiralty is playing it up in the newspapers. You know, they've leaked the mission, they've leaked his command, they've leaked the names of the ships and the numbers of guns, stating also that this is the first time that line of battleships have been sent on a mission like this. Jack says he's read it in multiple papers in Lisbon, and, and he finds this, you know, way too much talk. It's too flashy. And he wonders, as the text says, how can we be expected to take them by surprise if it's shouted from the housetops? He finishes right. by saying, given the coming calm, he intends to ask all the captains to dinner the next day, to be sure there's a good understanding among them of this mission, their mission. Right. And although he's clearly worried that loose lips can sink ships, he also knows that he needs to get with his command and get these captains talking to each other. Um, Stephen says that if you want a good understanding with Captain Thomas, the Purple Emperor, as, as he's called, Jack need only tell Thomas about Lord Nelson's comment about slavery and the Royal Navy to get Thomas on board because he thinks... Thomas is a big fan of the Nelson narrative there. And uh, he explains that the Thames's surgeon had called Stephen over to examine Thomas. Now, Thomas had told Stephen what great nonsense he thought that this anti-slavery mission was. Thomas himself had said, the squadron's too small. We can't guard the entire coast of Africa. No ship of the line can catch a small, fast slaver. Doesn't see the point. And Thomas had gone on to say that these slaves come from different tribes and speak different languages, and they often hated each other. Once they were freed, they would be set down in Sierra Leone and told to till a plot of land, having never been farmers before. And Thomas thinks that given all of these problems as he sees them with the anti-slavery mission, it would be kinder to allow slaves to be taken quickly to the West Indies, where people would look after them, and having paid for them would, more importantly, look after them spiritually and turn them into Christians instead of leaving them in Africa, where they will necessarily be damned. And in Stephen's report here, Thomas had wrapped up his little uh, intervention with Nelson's piece about the abolition of slavery and destroying the Navy and saying how the Bible approved slavery. So even though it's incredibly unpalatable to Stephen, he's willing to serve this up to Jack as a little insight into Thomas's character to give Jack maybe a point of leverage, a point of how to motivate Thomas to get on board with the squadron here. Nice. Nice. I'm not going to comment about the theology at all, but I will no. say that it is interesting that Stephen, <laughs> Stephen is, as you say, helping Jack to say, you know, here's this guy. I, I know how you think. I know how he thinks. And it's not 
in his mind, informing as if Jack had asked him about somebody there. Well, Jack asked what Stephen had to say to all that, what Captain Thomas had said. And I'm sure Jack wants to know for his own mind, because he knows this is a point, as we said earlier, in which he and Stephen disagree. And Stephen says that he couldn't get a word in edgewise, but he did give Thomas a dose to help ease his anger and purge his malignant humors. And Jack Ooh, hopes yeah. that that will make Thomas a better companion at the dinner the next day. And, and observes, as, as the text says, it must be a weary life being in a permanent state of rage, or at least at half cock. Uh, <laughs> Stephen's watch then chimes, and Jack, with superstitious exactness, sends out to make sure that they've passed the parallel so he can open those orders. Well, Jack receives notice that they are indeed well past the parallel. He takes the orders from the iron box, that iron box he keeps in his cabinet with all the signals and codes and the other things, all of which in this you know heavy box would go overboard if they're ever in danger of being captured. The orders are lengthy and detailed, the most voluminous he's ever received, including a lot of remarks and observations from all the commanders who preceded him on this coast ever since 1808. And he's glad that they're there because he's always tried to stay as far away from what he thinks of as this unhealthy place with its variable winds, calms, and distressing currents as ever he could. Yeah, and and it's curious, isn't it? All of this uh, intelligence about the tricky navigational conditions and the winds and the currents, this would all maybe seem like extra complication. But actually, for Jack, I think this comes as a relief. He says that he's delighted to see that after spending some time harassing the slavers, the squadron is going to do what he sees of as more like proper Navy work and intercept and destroy a French squadron that's taking a circuitous course, ultimately heading for Bantry Bay. And Mike, by the way, we've we've sort of figuratively been to Bantry Bay before. Uh, we remember it from the great interview that we had with Paddy Cullivan about Wolf Tone and the Rising, the Irish Rebellion of 1798. That was many episodes ago. But back then, we heard about how the French had tried to land troops in Ireland. If we go back, I think it's to episode 93, part of our chapter-by-chapter read-through of Master and Commander. You can dig that out from there. So, Jack is kind of relieved to have something else to do besides the slavery piece. He's also glad that the familiar final paragraph is there in his orders, commanding him to consult with Dr. Stephen Maturin, who it says might convey more precise dates and positions later. And he should consult with him on all points of political or diplomatic significance. And finally, he skips over the last part, the part that we're all kind of mouthing along with him here, where it says he must not fail in this or any part of it, as he would answer the contrary at his peril. So these are traditional admiralty orders for Jack. This is familiar territory now. Uh, Mike, uh, even though Jack in the text here hasn't spotted the connection between these orders and how they affect the objections he had just a few moments ago about the high profile and the visibility of his anti-slavery mission, we should give him until later in the chapter. It's nice though, because as the reader, and Patrick O'Brien sometimes does this, he lets us in on the inside. So we know something with a little knowing smile that the protagonists don't know about. And very often it's Jack who is a little bit behind us. Let's, Let's just say that so far, um, Jack Aubrey is no George Smiley, right, Mike? <laughs> That's right. No George Smiley, indeed. Oh, gosh. Well, Jack is, as you say, he's excited about these orders. He's excited that Stephen's in on them, and he calls for Stephen to discuss them. 
But as soon as Stephen appears, O'Brien writes, the radiance in Jack's face, smile, eyes drop by two or three powers. And it's when Jack realizes, oh, wait a minute, you know, I'm not quite sure how Stephen's going to feel about stopping a French invasion, or as the French would say, liberation of Ireland. Jack (laughs) knows that Stephen would prefer that the English stay in England and leave the government of Ireland to the Irish. So Stephen notices, and, and being the good friend that he is, he sees this change in Jack's face. And Jack says that he's, he's sure Stephen knows about what's in the orders. And he gives Stephen a paper for him from the orders and suggests that they talk on the poop deck where there's some more privacy. So I love that Jack kind of is thinking about Stephen. And I think Stephen is clearly thinking about Jack too here. Yeah, they're friends, aren't they? And it's, it's really working out for them here. Again, you could contrast, Mike, with this conversation that they're about to have here with how the conversation might have gone earlier in the canon. Right. But they get the poop, they get the poop deck cleared, they walk back and forth until Stephen observes that Jack doesn't know where to begin and uh, offers to tell Jack how it is. Stephen says that the Irish question, as the newspapers call it, can, in his mind, be solved by Catholic emancipation and the dissolution of the union. And of course, he's talking here about the the union between England and Ireland, but the act of union actually also in various other times have brought England, Wales, and Scotland together. So a Welsh or Scottish nationalist might have the same sentiment, but Stephen's talking about the dissolution of the union between England and Ireland. Stephen hopes that these things, emancipation and dissolution, might come about without violence, but he knows that if the French come and arm the discontented of Ireland In his words, there would be the very devil to pay. Endless violence. And it might even tip the balance, giving that infernal Bonaparte the victory. He goes on to describe then how Ireland would be Catholic in name only, but ruled by what he calls an efficient and totally unscrupulous tyranny, suffering the same fate as Rome, Venice, Switzerland and Malta, as they had had under Bonaparte. And Stephen's final kind of button on this conversation is to say, though it would grieve many of my friends, I should with all my heart prevent a French landing. I have served long enough in the Navy to prefer the lesser of two weevils. So you have, brother, said Jack, looking at him affectionately. And Mike, we were talking a second ago about the maturity of these two guys and how their how their friendship works between them. You know, back in the first three or four books, Stephen would have roasted Jack over this and let him kind of commit himself to kind of thoughtless anti-Irish views and then teased him for it. But not so here. He just sets his stall out and says, Jack, be it easy in your mind. For the following really good reasons, I'm fine with us stopping the French from descending on Ireland. So... A a nice moment and very, very nicely put, I think, by Stephen with the help of the author Patrick O'Brien. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I I love Jack's affectionate, yes, Stephen, you are a nautical man now. We'll see how long that lasts. But (laughs) you you do know to prefer the lesser of two weevils. Love that. Well, Jack says he's required and directed to advise with Stephen on the difficult points. And we'll share all of his orders with him directly, you know, when Stephen's at leisure. And he tells Stephen that since so many people are often lost to sickness in these parts, the orders say that if any ship gets too many sick, they're to collect the sick from the other ships and then head for Ascension Island. Everybody's more likely to get better there. They've got the turtles to eat. They've got the climate. They've got the green plants. And and Stephen, you know, says the island's name kind of in a voice of longing. I think Jack's waving a little 
plum after him saying, you know, there might be a chance for you to go ashore, do some naturalizing here. Now, Jack also tells Stephen that Jack's old shipmate, James Wood, is the governor of Sierra Leone. Uh, Stephen remembers meeting Wood in the Downs when Woods was the captain of the Hebe and stayed at Ashgrove. And they both are thinking back that Woods had this habit of bribing the dockyard people to carry what they called unconscionable amounts of supplies, rope and paint and the like here. Now, <laughs> we, we've got a little historical reference. I wanted to go back and say, oh, Woods, you know, oh. Governor Sierra Leone. But actually, um, you know, in the Patrick O'Brien muster book, uh, Anthony Gary Brown points out that in the actual timeline, the naval governors of Sierra Leone had ended at this time and given way to more military governors. But we're glad to have an old shipmate here. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there are going to be other connections to uh, to James Wood that we might come back to later on. But uh, let's take that as it is for now. Jack says that since Stephen knows all about the second part, the political part of his orders, they won't have to discuss them, saying, Tache is the Latin for candlestick. Well, pick a, pick a little hole in that in a, in a second. And as to the first part of the orders, he says... The mission is to make a great roaring din straight away and amaze all observers as well as liberating as many slaves as possible. And just like he often does, Jack sets out his plan to invite the captains together to find out if anybody has experience in these waters so he can build a plan that exploits that knowledge. Uh, so he's going to invite them all to dine the following day. And Mike, I, lo- I love this phrase, Tache is the Latin for candlestick. It's a nice little bit of, this is the level of Latin quote that Aubrey aspires to, right? Um, he used this as a phrase in Postcaptain, in Fortune of War, and Clarissa Oaks. Actually, it's a nice little malapropism. Tache is not Latin for candlestick. Candela is the Latin for candle. Tache is the Latin singular imperative tense of the verb for be silent, as in tacit, like in a tacit understanding. Um, a candle is a symbol of light. And what we guess he's saying here, Mike, is he's saying, keep it on the down low, keep it dark, don't throw light upon it. And I think we get that, if I'm right, from Anthony Gary Brown's excellent guide for the perplexed and the dictionary of phrase and fable. So all these great resources here for us to use. Yeah, it, it, there's nothing like having an 1898 guide as well as our more contemporary <laughs> yeah. uh, guide for the complex to balance these off. And I think somebody back in the day there, that's really neat. Well, so we go straight to all the captains who've you know been gathered on the poop deck and Jack's telling them they're to make a strong demonstration as soon as they arrive on the coast. And he asks if they or any of their officers have been on service on the African coast. No one answers. And Jack turns to Captain Thomas. He knows that Thomas has served many years in the West Indies, has owned property there. And he asks Thomas if he has anything in particular to say. Well, Thomas gets very upset and cries, why me? Why should I have anything particular to say about slavery? (laughs) (laughs) And, And Thomas is saying this and sees this astonished look on the other captain's faces, remembers himself and apologizes, saying you know, he was upset by his bargeman's stupidity as he came on board here, but that, no, he has nothing to add. He then seems to swallow something that he's about to say, and Stephen and Mr. Adams' eyes meet, both of them thinking that you know, Thomas was swallowing his praises of slavery and the trade. So you know, this theme continues. Yeah, it's funny. And Stephen had kind of recommended giving Thomas his head a little bit to talk about slavery because he thought it might get him on side. But actually, Thomas is realizing here that he's out of step with the, with the tone of the rest of the group. 
probably a smart move on Thomas's part, but it kind of leaves this lingering feeling of isolation for Thomas and a bit of resentment there, maybe. Anyhow, Jack's got his tactical plan beginning to emerge here. He tells them that the reports of his predecessors in this mission make it clear that it is his all inshore small craft work. So he says, your responsibility as captains is to make sure your boats are in working order. Be ready to step mast and proceed under sail in these boats for considerable distances. He wants them also to keep making progress on their great gun exercises. And as a little social thing, maybe as a little incentive, he says they're all invited to dine after tomorrow's great gun exercise. And that kind of wraps up the little council meeting here between the captains. But Maturin's friend, Captain Howard, mentions to Stephen that he has a master's mate, not technically an officer, therefore, who didn't pass for lieutenant because the examining officers didn't think that he was a gentleman, but that he knows a great deal about the slave trade. And having listened to this sort of indirect offer being made to Jack by this back channel, Stephen says, well, I'm sure Captain Aubrey would want to talk with the master's mate. And Howard's glad about this. He's glad to recommend this master's mate, whose name is Huell, thinks he'll be helpful. He's served himself on a number of slavers, including one of Captain Thomas's own regular slave ships. And we're getting a little bit more of a light being shone here on Captain Thomas, none of it being any good reason at all to like Captain Thomas. And Stephen says, well, I didn't know that Thomas had owned slavers. And Howard says, yeah, it's a, it's a family concern. He's sensitive about it since the law abolished the trade. He don't choose to have it known. So it turns out that mm. that's what Thomas was sensitive about. That's what had led to this rather odd encounter with Thomas in the Council of Captains up there on the poop deck. But Mike, I'm, I'm super glad that we get meet, to meet this master's mate because I really like the character of Huell. Tell us a little bit about Huell. I'm with you. It's a fascinating character here. O'Brien tells us Huell was born in Jamaica. He's about 35. His face is badly marked by the remnants of smallpox, as well as an explosion of a 12-pound cartridge case that had kind of where smallpox hadn't got him. The exploding cartridge case has. He has bad teeth. They're gapped and discolored. But with all this description, you know, sort of these things seeming to, you know, perhaps go against him. He's on board in 10 minutes in his best uniform. And Jack looks at him and thinks that his looks are not the reason he didn't make lieutenant. Jack's thinking to himself, you know, I've known worse looking midshipmen who've passed. (laughs) Jack thinks it's the yellow tinge in his complexion, as O'Brien writes, the evident legacy of an African great grandmother. So, wow, uh, you know, O'Brien doing a masterful job of weaving this theme of, of race, of slavery, of this time of people. And we don't really get back to it, but we know Jack's always had this issue with a great master's mate, somebody, a great midshipman who isn't passed because he doesn't pass for gentlemen. You know, Tom Pullins yeah. being our shining example for one yeah. that we've talked about so often here. It's great. Now, uh, Jack and Stephen talk with you and learn about his experience sailing and trading in Africa and his experience with slaving. And Huell, we learn, had worked on his father's ships. His father later had helped him get his wish to serve in the Royal Navy. Huell had risen to master's mate during the peace, had ended up in the peace then also with some slavers, described the conditions aboard one of these large slave ships to Stephen's complete dismay. The way the people were crammed together, the way the slaves were unable to move or stand, the really horrible unsanitary conditions under the gratings of what was called the slave deck, 
with uh, just mind-numbing result that up to a, it would be considered normal for up to a third of the slaves to be dead on arrival in the Caribbean or wherever their destination was. Even so, even with that terrible loss of life along the way, the slavers were still able to make a profit. And that had been up to the point where the trade had been outlawed, at least in, uh, in England. Many of the slavers had given up later when the regular preventive squadron was in place, but the trade had picked back up since that squadron had left. And, and you could say that what Jack is doing now is doing a little reincarnation of one aspect of the slavery prevention squadron. Most of the slavers we learn are schooners, that's to say fast, fore and aft rigged, very weatherly vessels, not unlike the Ringle. Some of them are also actual Baltimore clippers, just like the Ringle is, and they are Americans typically sailing under Spanish colors because the Spaniards are not subject to the English abolition laws. And Hewell goes on and describes the inshore work that will be necessary to interdict the slavery trade. Lots of it's going on with canoes. There are going to be opportunities for, the, for schooners to go in and pick up slaves captured in the interior. So this is all, as Jack has already signaled here, small boat work. The good news is that Hewell knows the coast really well. He knows the places where the slavers trade, and he shares this with Jack. Jack suggests that we start with the charts. He asks Hewell. It's, it's a little bit like exposition, but in a geographic way. If you want to go onto the uh, the Tom Horn website, canonade.net, you can kind of wave your hands over the chart in the same way that Hewell must have been waving his hands over the chart with Jack here. Describes what's going on coming down from the north and as the coast trends eastwards. Jack's recording whatever Hewell can tell him about conditions, about currents, breezes, and where the active slave markets are. On other days, he says, we'll have this conversation over again, and I'll bring in Captain Pullings and Mr. Adams to take more detailed notes. And Jack turns to Stephen and says, the rest of this conversation is going to be nautical, as he calls it, dull work for a landsman, and invites Stephen to take his pick. He can stay or go. Stephen says, well, I, I don't resemble a landsman. And in fact, he says, I'm salted to the bone, a pickled herring. But nonetheless, he's away to go and check on the sick berth. And on the way out, he does get a chance to just trail a little idea with uh, with the master's mate Hewell there saying, I hope that you'll have time to tell me later about West African mammals. I've heard about pangolins, at least three species, he says. So he's, he's not willing to walk away from the conversation without at least briefly making his pitch for a bit of naturalizing. And Mike, we're going to come on to potos later, but tell us a bit about pangolins. What the heck is a pangolin? Yeah, this is just a, a brilliant little, you know, tiny Easter egg that that O'Brien's dropped here. Penguins, often called scaly anteaters, look a bit like a cross between an anteater and an armadillo. And in the midst of this discussion of slavery, O'Brien drops in these penguins who are the most trafficked animals in the world. So they are taken from Africa and, and some species from parts of Asia to meet these incredible demands for their scales and claws, which are used in traditional medicine. Their skins are processed into luxury goods, leather boots and belts and bags. And their meat is considered a delicacy in China and huh. Vietnam. So you know, maybe we could pop something out on social media there. Uh, fascinating yeah, animals to watch and to look at. And to realize that while they would to a naturalist be incredibly fascinating, that here they are. These are perhaps, if you might say, the most enslaved animals in oh the midst gosh. of this conversation. Yeah, that's a good way to put so Stephen, no doubt, would have been hoping that the conversation could carry on in a naturalistic vein, but he's going to go and talk, talk people again with the stately surgeon. 
so the next day, Mr. Gifford, the stately surgeon, comes to visit Stephen, and and he's kind of looking embarrassed. And Stephen's wondering, you know, what's going on here? We've known each other long enough that he shouldn't. And, and there's a lot of long general conversation. And finally, he asks to speak privately. In private, he tells Stephen that he's speaking to him as one medical man to another. He's not meaning to betray any confidence. But he says their captain, as it is well known, is a pederast who favors the young foremast hands that he calls into his cabin at night. And the officers on the stately are worried that this favoritism is going to destroy discipline. The officers don't want to take any official action, which would result, they say, in an ignominious hanging and throw great discredit on the ship. And they hope that a private word to the Commodore from, and he goes on to say, you know, from a medical man, a friend, (laughs) an old shipmate, in other words, from you, Stephen, you know, might suffice here. And Stephen says, hold on, I need to tell you that I abhor an informer as much, maybe even more than a sodomite. And then rethinks himself and says, well, if I was even said to abhor a sodomite for being a sodomite at all. And he realizes that perhaps these connections are out of place on a man of war, but he's worried and he tells Gifford about blasting the captain's reputation based on what he calls mere secondhand statements of probabilities. And Gifford asks him to consider the good of the service. And Stevens, yeah, thinking, yeah, okay, some truth to that. But a ship's boy comes running in, reminding Stephen that Killick's been waiting for him over the last half of a glass to you know, try on this new ruffled shirt that Killick's made up for him. And Stephen, you know, very upset that he's late, tells Gifford he'll think it over and get back to him. Ah, the the dinner hour is upon us. It's time for all of us to go and check our ruffled shirts and make sure our shirt fronts are nicely ironed and starched and pleated. Um, Why don't we all step into the wardroom for a quick glass of something bitter and we'll be right back after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hold. Welcome back. We hope that whatever you had in the break has whetted your appetite, just like we hope Stephen's and Jack's appetites are whetted for the dinner that's about to take place. Stephen is standing there later watching the captains arrive. He's wearing his new shirt, taken care of by Killick. The Stately's bargemen are all really nicely turned out. They're all uniformly decorated. They're in little tight white trousers. They've got ribbons down the seams. They're wearing embroidered shirts and neckerchiefs and broad-brimmed senate hats. They have gleaming pigtails. The essence of manly perfection, you might say. And Jack sees them too, and without thinking, really, turns to Duff and says, upon my word, you'll have to take care of those young ladies' rig or coarse-minded people will be getting very comical ideas into their heads. They will say, Sodom tomorrow, and quote Article 29. Oh, ha, 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 ha. Now, I, I don't think anybody who's listening to this will be confused about what Article 29 refers to. <laughs> um, but if you haven't smoked it yet, um, you can go online and check it out. And just remember that uh, um, SOD, S-O-D, doesn't stand for a swipe online dating in this context. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, it's 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 an excellent dinner. Even the purple emperor is acting agreeable and, and probably you know, even more so after the prior day's gaff. 
And Stephen overhears a Marine officer sitting close by who knows many literary people in London. And he's talking about their enjoyment of a new novel by a Mr. John Poulton. Hmm. And, the, and the officer says, dedicated, curiously enough, to a gentleman of the same name as Dr. Matron, a relative, no doubt. <laughs> and so a great little throwback. We remember Poulton was Reverend Martin's friend from the Nutmeg of Consolation. You know, that friend in New South Wales who had sheltered Padine and helped him escape. So a, a nice throwback, a nice reference but just conversation at dinner. Stephen overhears this, but Stephen is is using most of his time to watch Captain Duff. And the text says he sees no hints of the traits usually associated with unorthodox affections. He also notices that Duff seems to be unmoved by the Commodore's earlier comment. So Stephen's thinking, so this just doesn't seem to be right. But he does notice that Duff has moments where he's got a certain anxiety, a certain desire for approval, kind of perhaps a little bit more out of the ordinary. And Stephen thinks to himself that if the Stately's officers are correct, he hopes that Jack's candid and innocent remark will be enough of a warning here. So mm. as the officers at, at the end of the dinner are all drinking coffee together on the poop deck, Duff tells Stephen he hopes that he might see Stephen ashore when they reach Sierra Leone. And Stephen says that he is hoping to go ashore because he really wants to see the birds and the beasts and the flowers there. And he hopes that a young officer that they have there aboard the Bologna, who knows the country, will guide him. <laughs> Bless him. St- Stephen's not going to let any conversation go by without a chance to mention, ideally within earshot of Jack Aubrey, that he'd really like to do some naturalizing. Anyhow. Right. Before we get the chance to hear from Mr. Huell telling Stephen about wildlife, Huell actually gets to spend his days working with the Commodore and the chief officers as the squadron sails ever closer to Africa. There are competitions between ships as Jack works up the squadron. Even the flagship, although far superior to all the others in gunnery, can't lower man and arm all boats as fast as the Flash Thames can. However, the officers aboard the Thames, who are all very well-versed in harbour competitions, like lowering the boats, but don't know what to do in them once they get the the boats down in the water. The competition between ships, in addition to all of the regular duties, gets really heated. And maybe, Mike, I'm starting to think Jack Aubrey's uh, desire for competition as a spur to greater achievement by all these ships might possibly have a downside. This might backfire because we're seeing some tension even here aboard Jack Aubrey's old followers. The competition intensifies. There is, in fact, a striking drop in the number of defaulters, even in the unhappy Thames. Almost no drunkenness, no fighting, no murmuring. But Jack worries that there might be too much rivalry when he sees the stony looks that his bargemen get around the squadron because they're associated with Jack, who's playing the tyrant here. And an old, calm hand like Joe Place had thrown his hat on the deck and stomped on it with a great oath when the laurel had beat them in crossing upper yards. So, all not completely at peace yet, and maybe some of Jack Aubrey's uh, leadership might be backfiring on him here, but I'm not sure that Jack is too bothered about that yet. Um, Jack is spending most of his time with his master, John Woodbine, with Tom Pullings, with Mr. Hewell, and with Adams, and they're planning an initial campaign of You might call it shock and awe, a startling campaign designed to disrupt the slave trade. 
Jack wants the campaign to be successful, but above all, brief. He doesn't want to get stuck with all these unreliable wins close in with the coast of Africa. He doesn't want to miss intercepting the French squadron that we now know is headed for Ireland. He says he would hang himself from the main top if he missed them. But he knows he needs to live up to the public promise of this mission. He needs to do as much as he can about the slaves and be seen and heard in the act of doing it. And Mike, one of his first actions here is to fix a little, uh, a, a little imbalance that there is in the in the command structure. Yeah, yeah. With with Lieutenant Gray's death, Jack needs another lieutenant, and he makes Huel an acting lieutenant. And he knows that it grieves the you know the men on his own ship because okay, you know with uh, an acting order like this, he usually gets confirmed by the Admiralty. So everybody on the balloon is like, oh, pick me, pick me, but. Jack really needs Huel's knowledge, his contacts, his understanding of local affairs all up and down the coast, and his command of languages. And further, Jack being Jack, you know, picks him because he likes Huel for his seamanship, for his clear-minded, intelligent accuracy, and for just who he is himself. And Jack spent so much time working with him. And Huel, like the other officers and Jack, they've all just continued working right through many of their meals. And I think Jack really admires this here. This is this is a guy who's taking the mission as seriously as Jack is. But yeah. all of these guys working through meals is kind of leaving Stephen with nowhere to eat. So Stephen resumes his kind of natural place, the surgeon's place, back in the wardroom mess. But now... This is a pennant ship, and so the wardroom is very crowded. There's lots of extra mm. officers because they've got not only the captain, but they've got the commodore and everybody's extra people to take care of. And they really don't know what to make of Stephen. And interestingly, none of Stephen's old shipmates are in this mess. Um, so, yeah. you know, the folks that are there, all they know is that Stephen is a friend of the captain's, you know, a particular friend. Uh, he's also a friend of Captain Poolings, and he's said to be richer than all of them, richer than anybody on the ship. Then. And the few times Stephen's been in, he doesn't say much. So uh, Stephen, on his part, doesn't really like the roaring mirth and the long anecdotes of two of the Marine lieutenants, and he doesn't like the purser's card tricks there. Uh, and and everybody, uh, again, over and above everything else, is concerned that Stephen, when he comes, is the unlucky 13th guest. So Stephen, I think everybody kind of realizes this. And Stephen finds himself coming only at the end of meals and, and perhaps carrying a little food away in a napkin to the Orlop or to his surgeon's captain. So definitely an uneasy situation here. Yeah. And to be honest, I'm quite glad to get a bit of solitary time as the, as the reader, um, with Stephen, because we know that he had to leave Clarissa and Padine and Bridget ashore in Spain. And how's he really been doing? And the text tells us here, actually, he's been pretty happy. In fact, he's been filled with happiness ever since they got put ashore in Coruña. He missed, though, the life of a small village, the home that he had come to know and love on the surprise, that tight naval family that he'd had for it must have been months, years in the previous missions, the previous four or five books. This ship of the line that he's in now is much more like a town than a village. There are more people. There's there's a more complicated physical environment. There's an extra deck to deal with. It's going to take him years to get to know everyone as well as he had done before, e even if that were possible. 
He's thinking about all this when he comes up the ladder, wandering at the clean, swept look of the deck with all the gun ports open, letting in the light all the way down to his sick berth that's cut off by a canvas screen. And Mr. Weatherby drops through a hatch to tell him that the Commodore would be pleased to see him on the poop at his leisure. And Stephen says, okay, my respects to the Commodore. I'll wait upon him as soon as I've looked in on the sick berth. And we were glad, I think, to spend time with Stephen, reflecting on how he's doing. And I think we're glad as well to spend a bit of time with Jack and Stephen getting back into their conversation here. Yeah, so, you know, Jack's been working. He had seen Stephen for a good while. And, and Jack says, you know, he hadn't seen him in an age. He's asked him how he's doing. Stephen says he's doing fine. But then on his part, he, Stephen, can't congratulate Jack on his looks. Jack says, mm-hmm. well, you've never congratulated me on my looks, and it would make me nervous if you started doing so now. <laughs> you know, these they, they are, you know, we're, we're getting a little bit more back into that kind of odd couple, of, of but that domestic familiarity between these two friends here. But Stephen says, well, wait, have you stopped doing your morning swim, your afternoon climb to the uh, foretop, your three-mile pacing before quarters? And Jack says, well, you know, in fact, I have. Um, you know, there's sharks in all these waters, always present, They, I hear, in slaver waters. And he's been too busy forming his plan for the rest. He really wants the plan to be good. And he really wants it to allow them enough time to accomplish the, the secret second half of the mission. Stephen asks if he's satisfied with his progress. Is he making good progress? And Jack says, well, you know, I, I don't mean to be boastful, but I, but I think we are. Yeah. Um, and he just regrets that he just, the, the thing that's missing is how to make this prodigious, great thundering din on their first arrival, the way their lordships require him to do so. This is this is the only thing he hasn't got figured out yet. Ah, but Mike, I'm not too worried about this. I, I think Jack Aubrey can find a way to bring the shock and awe with the resources at his disposal. I, I'm not feeling too downhearted about this, but I am interested in whether he's actually twigged to what's going on with these two parts to his mission. So Jack takes Stephen aside and goes back into his complaint that all these news articles are kind of puffing up the presence of the squadron and the ministry is still making a big deal out of the fact that this squadron is in place, including an article in the Times. Um, He might, he says, have been able to catch some slavers right next to Freetown if they hadn't already been warned by the newspapers. And Stephen gently lays with him the idea that perhaps French intelligence reads the Times and the posts very carefully, but that slavers in the Bight of Benin probably subscribe to neither. So that's a very broad, unsubtle hint that actually this is all deliberate. It's not carelessness. It's not ill will on somebody's part. This is a deliberate piece of management of the intelligence situation. The articles, he says, are probably the ministry's way of encouraging the French to, as he calls it, carry on with their knavish tricks in spite of the sailing of this squadron. And Jack is really relieved and delighted, says he'd probably better stick to navigation and to the fiddle. There I was, he said, setting up for a political cove. And he laughs and he asks Stephen to join in some music. And Mike, this is great because not long ago we heard Jack saying he didn't have heart for music and he hadn't touched his fiddle. But now he's realizing what's really going on here. His friend Stephen is right on top of the political situation. 
I also love the fact that uh, he hears Stephen quoting, as he has done before, the British national anthem. Confound their knavish tricks, confuse their politics. On thee our hopes we fix. God save us all. That's verse two, or is it verse three? I can't remember. Of God save the king. I don't know. It gives me goosebumps and makes me want to jump up from my chair. Right. <laughs> I'm loving it. Well, O'Brien tells us, now we're kind of back to Stephen here, that Dr. Matron has many of the virtues required of a medical man. He listens to his patients. He wishes even the most repulsive of them well. He is indifferent to their fees. And even though he knows better than most the limitations of his trade, he disguises that awareness to keep their spirits up, believing in the healing powers of cheerfulness and mirth. But, O'Brien says, he has a bad habit, a habit of dosing himself. He says that generally this is from a spirit of inquiry. And, you know, this has resulted in Stephen's experiments with nitrous oxide, vapor of hemp, tobacco, mm. Indian bang, a, a cannabis edible, a beetle in Java, the, the world's fourth most common psychoactive drug I read behind nicotine, alcohol, oh. and caffeine. <laughs> and and it's, you know, this is another one that's chewed in combination with a seed releasing a stimulant causing sensations of mild euphoria. So we can kind of see that, uh, you know, where Stephen might be attracted to that. The list goes on. Cat in the Red Sea, another set of leaves choose as a stimulant. You know, they result in excitement, loss of appetite, euphoria. And finally finishing with the hallucinating cacti in South America. Ah, you know, getting getting a lot of airtime nowadays again. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so generally this spirit of inquiry, but sometimes, O'Brien tells us, for the relief of distress, such as his laudanum, his opium, or as O'Brien tells us, the coca leaves he's currently poisoning himself with. Hmm. And Stephen, you know, it's not only using a great deal of these coca leaves, but he's worried that they're not as effective as they used to be. And he thinks, well, you know, maybe they're getting old or I could be overindulging, but it must be that they're going stale. So he makes a mental note. You know, I'm, I'm going to get some fresh ones as soon as we're anywhere close to Brazil. So, Ian, what do you think? This phenomena of medical people dosing themselves more than general population? Well, it's funny. In, in, in modern times, it's... A kind of a trope that we all accept. I think that the doctors, physicians, and surgeons are at least as prone to mental illness and at least as prone to addiction as the rest of us, which which is a worrying, but I think true finding. I went looking for the research. I don't think there's evidence to say that physicians and surgeons are more prone to addiction than the rest of us, but they're certainly not less prone. There is a really famous counterexample from history that stood out when I thought of our Stephen, the surgeon, the addict. Um, there's a fellow by the name of William Stewart Halstead, who was alive in the second half of the 19th century. He was an American surgeon who was a big pioneer. He uh, emphasized uh, aseptic technique during surgery. He was a champion of anesthetics. He introduced new operations, including radical mastectomy for breast cancer. But throughout his life, he was known as an addict. He was addicted to cocaine and later also to morphine. So it's by no means unthinkable that a physician, for the reasons that Stephen is talking about, and for many other reasons as well, can become addicted to these substances. So as O'Brien began to telling us a couple of paragraphs ago, Stephen is really not unlike many of his fellow physicians and surgeons here. Now, tonight, 
Stephen really would like to play well. So he takes a larger dose of his coca leaves. But by the way, upping the dose because you think that the effects are wearing out has worked out badly for him in the past. And he clearly can't remember what happened in Sweden with him falling down the stairs. But never mind. That to one side for a second. He does sit down to play with Jack. They do play very well, but the Commodore's mm, a, a bit weighed down by work, by uh, intake of port, and by some great toasted cheese. And the Commodore falls to sleep straight away afterwards. But Stephen having taken a young man's coca dose, is having a hard time getting to sleep despite his earplugs, despite taking a powerful sleeping draft, and despite a bolus of Java mandragora. That's the nightshade plant that has these human-looking roots, like a roots like a pair of legs of a man. And this means that Stephen is pretty much pharmacologically a mess for the night. Now, before we talk about the consequences of himself dosing, tell us a bit about mandragora, because... O'Brien's not the only author to have weaved that particular herb root into storytelling, right, Mike? No, no, no. I, I, you know, I always think of that famous Harry Potter scene where they're replanting oh, yeah. the mandrakes here, right? And it does, as O'Brien uses here, it contains compounds which cause delirium and hallucinations. Now, back in the Harry Potter scene, we were taking these human-like roots, which actually do exist, but we brought them to life. And everybody that's repotting them has to wear these earmuffs to make sure they don't hear the scream of the the mandrake roots here, or they'd be petrified, which played a big plot line in that story here. But here, Stephen's just trying to use their, you know, kind of that nightshade effect to try to get him to sleep, but to distressing effect, I'm afraid, ultimately. Yeah. Well, in in the morning, he couldn't get to sleep, couldn't get to sleep, takes all this stuff. And in the morning, Nobody can wake him. So we even have gone up to Wilkins, a senior master's mate, reporting to First Lieutenant Harding that, you know, he can't get Stephen up. He said, you know, we tried to, you know, pull off his clothes. We tried to shake his bed. He tried to bite us and <laughs> curled back up again. And, and finally, Killick, you know, probably the one man in all of the world who could do it, gets Stephen up, dressed, a little bit washed, but looking a little dazed and confused on deck. Ah, well done. Now, it's not the first time Stephen's been grouchy coming on deck, but we I think we enjoy it nonetheless. Jack greets him, gives him a good morning, and Stephen, peering heavily about, says, what's afoot? So Stephen's clearly suspicious of the environment that he's found himself in. And Jack says that they've stopped a slaver, a slaver by the name of the Nancy. He says, Mr. Hewell knows this vessel. The master of the Nancy is coming aboard. Jack wants Stephen to speak with him, to examine his papers and to make out what nationality he is. Clearly suspecting that whatever the first story is from the master of this slaver might not be the correct one. Privately, Jack's really hoping that this is an illegal slaver. So the master comes aboard, presents what he describes as an interpreter, saying that he speaks Spanish and only a little English. Stephen exchanges a few sentences, presumably in Spanish, with this guy, looks at his papers, throws the papers overboard and says, "Uh uh-uh, this is an Englishman. He doesn't know any Spanish, so Jack can safely seize the ship. So, fantastic. The the, the day is transformed now. Stephen is absolutely on his game. And uh, this is a good result. We've captured the slave. Our first interaction, we've discovered some of the wrongdoing that the squadron set out to discover. But it doesn't end there. Stephen and Jack and Hewell pull across in a boat. 
And while Jack is telling Huell how often he discovers ships at dawn, um, they're getting closer and closer to the slaver. The stench is growing worse, the water's filthy, and Jack is silent at the sight of the bodies of two small, dead, grey girls going over the side and being torn apart by sharks. The slaves aboard the Nancy don't understand Huell, even though he tries to speak some of what he thinks of as the local languages. Uh, They assume that they have new captors and are afraid, but they're desperate for food and water. So Huell carries on with his language skills here, tries to reassure them. Only a few small children from among the slavers seem to understand what he's saying. The first groups of slave men come up from the hatches, bent over from the night with two and a half feet of headroom. Jack and Stephen and Bondon and Huell go below into what we hear of as the unbreathable fetor, the unbreathable atmosphere. Slaves come up in pairs. They come forward, they're chained together, they're rubbing their knees and their elbows and their chafed heads where they've been confined. Their expressions are inhuman. O'Brien calls it apathy with underlying dread. No single evident emotion. The lines seem endless and they finally thin out and stop. And Huell says, okay, now we've got to the sick. They're all stowed forward. The only air is coming back through the hawse holes. And Stephen is a, potentially a little bit inured from this. He's got some professional armor from the time he spent in prison infirmaries, lunatic asylums, and poorhouse wards. Huell has got a little from his experience with slaver journeys, but Jack had none. And the text says, the gun deck amidships in a hard-fought fleet action, the slaughterhouse, as it was called, had in no way prepared him for this, and his head swam. So, Stephen has all the irons removed, examines several of the male slaves, and he says, hands with swabs are needed to take care of the dysentery. Jack goes on deck, and, and we know how Jack is responding to this because in a strangled savage, barking voice. He ordered six men below with buckets and swabs, six to the pumps, and four to look alive there in the galley, all whips overboard. He hailed the Bellona and called for a file of marines, an officer, the armourer and his mate, and the surgeon's assistant. He ordered all of the ship's bedding laid out on deck. They laid the sick upon the bedding as they came up one by one. Then Nancy's master climbs back up the side. Jack looks down, tells him to grab a swab and clean up below. And I, I I think that's that's the least punishment that this guy could take from somebody with Jack's response to this horrible, horrible sight here. The Marines take up their positions as food comes up for the slaves from the galley. At least 500 or more slaves fill the deck waiting to eat. That's more than the ship's company of a 74, I would guess. Jack, meanwhile, has got to take stock of this and start to figure out what to do with the slaves, and he's going to take some advice from Huell, right, Mike? Yeah, yeah. He has Huell try to tell everybody that they're not going to be harmed. They're going to be set free in Sierra Leone. And Huell tries, and, and a dozen or so show some interest, but the rest just eat wolfishly. Uh, and the text says, their eyes fixed on vacancy or on a world that had no meaning. Um, mm. And this, you know, how uh, I just... You know, this is just such an incredible job that O'Brien is doing, bringing this to life for us. And I think for yeah. Jack, for yeah. Jack, for yeah. whom this has been kind of a, an intellectual understanding in the past here. They agree, Jack and Huell, to remove all irons on 
everybody, and that they're going to take the hands off the ship at night and just leave a strong, well-armed prize crew aboard then. And Jack leaves them and the doctor to set up a sick berth and says, you know, you request anything that you need and we're going to provide it immediately. And then Jack turns to awkward Davis and we, we know Davies uh, well. And he tells Davies to watch the men at the pumps and to start them if they're slack and stay. So this is, this is a very impacted Jack Aubrey. You know, Jack is not a starting guy, but Jack is like, I think he's just, how do I? handle this this is just way too much davies you know you keep these guys on their toes and then then he gets out of there and it's great as well that he had been a bit doubtful not not quite of the purpose of the mission but he had been thinking well maybe this is all a little bit too much and it's really striking that it's in this chapter that he gets to see what slavery is for real and he's still affected by it as he takes himself back over to the Bellona. He takes off all his clothes, stands under a jet of water for a long time, clearly cleansing not only the, the fact of all of this filth, but I think the idea and the association of all this filth from himself. In his cabin, he's thinking very, very deeply. He writes two letters to Captain Wood in Sierra Leone, the naval governor there, one official and one private. And we'll discover later on what it is that he's asked for and what he's laid out in his plans there. Back aboard the Nancy, Stephen is satisfied with his patience. He asks Huell if, by the standards of the trade, the vessel was in bad condition. And Huell says, for a ship 14 days out, it was doing rather well. He says, I know the Commodore's shocked with what he saw, but dysentery gets far worse, even on a slave ship, than they'd seen here. He said he'd seen one ship that had been chased for three days with the slaves kept below with no food and little wind since they'd been running before the wind. When she was caught, 200 slaves were dead from dysentery, starvation, suffocation, misery, and even fighting. Equal numbers of two tribes, mortal enemies, had been crammed together, sold together into slavery, and they'd beaten each other to death with their irons before they grew too weak. So this is, this is just a, a horrible picture of humanity at its very, very worst. And Jack's clearly got some plans forming in his head here. He calls you all back, confirms that it's true that the practices for captured slavers to be sawn in half at Sierra Leone and that an estimated auction price is then distributed as prize money. And he'll says, yes, that's what they do because slavers would otherwise buy back their best ships at auction and put them right back to work. And Jack is also filling in the picture from Huell a little bit. He says, what about these people that I hear of called crewmen, apparently the best pilots on the coast? And Huell confirms this. Uh, these crewmen also speak and understand the best kind of coast English. So Jack wants Huell to go to Sierra Leone and deliver these two letters to Governor Wood. Also wants him to have the Nancy condemned straight away and moored in the roads, in the harbour there, once she's empty, and to have a loaded powder hoy ready for the squadron when she arrives. So Jack's clearly got some kind of a plan in his mind here. He also commands Huell to use his best efforts to recruit at least one good crewman for each of the squadron's boats going from the six-oared cutter all the way on up so that they can be guides for night raids to Sherbrooke Island and the Galinas River. And Huell believes that with a good breeze, he can achieve everything that Jack is asking for. He says there's a crew town in Sierra Leone with hundreds of men that he's known for 25 years, and they all hate slavery. And Mike, from the doubts that he had in the beginning of the chapter, this is a transformed Jack Aubrey closing out the chapter for us here. It, it, it really is. And and Jack says back to Hewitt, I'm very happy to hear you say so. Mr. Adams will give you your order and whatever money you judge necessary for the crewmen 
You will go aboard the Ringle as soon as possible and proceed to Sierra Leone without the loss of a minute. Take Mr. Reed with you. He handles her beautifully. And you may carry a press of sail, Mr. Huell. Good day to you. End of chapter seven. Wow. Yeah, you, now he really is, as you say, in a man on a mission. <laughs> yeah, and we're back to without the loss of a minute. And, uh, you know, yes. he, he, might, he might as well have said, carry horses to the mastheads, Mr. Huell. Like, get on it. I feel motivated to intervene now, which is great. And, you know, I, I'm sure that O'Brien has a very, very deep, impassioned hatred of slavery. And it might have been otherwise, I guess. And it's just, we, we've heard a little bit about that in, in odd moments earlier in the canon. But it's really important for us, I think, to see that Jack Aubrey witnesses this and that Jack, the Jack Aubrey written about by Patrick O'Brien has this really visceral response and that it motivates him that it's not just he's disgusted and he sees that he's the person on scene who can do something about it and i I, i'm right there with him yeah it's it's you know i'm 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 reminded so much of uh you know having read and and seen movies about the history of the song amazing grace you know written by a captain of a Mm. former slaver and you know kind of looking back on yeah. what have i done what was this and, and everything so i think i think jab aubrey's having one of those epiphanies in in real life as well here so it's um it's another fascinating chapter you know short right. interesting yeah. yeah um and and starting you know kind of quizzically a little bit with lieutenant's death uh at the beginning of that that possibility ended chapter 6 it begins this one uh, you know, Stephen at the end of six was putting out how that put jealousy in in perspective, the, the, this possibility of a man not surviving surgery. And now, you know, with this whole slavery thing blossoming in actual detail, I think once again, we're getting this perspective, this pers- Oh, I can't wait to go catch the other. My real mission. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. As Stephen had said earlier in this chapter, you might be thinking about the miserable slaves too, not just the right. So yeah. now Jack is for sure. Oh gosh. Well, I don't know. And when we opened this chapter, you know, we had kind of that, you know, it all seems fine. It went very well, this surgery, he died and was buried. And I couldn't help but wonder back then. And, and we left it for the rest of the chapter, but you know, is this saying anything about Jack and Sophie? That's what Stephen was comparing it to earlier. Yeah. We haven't heard anything else more from home. We know that Jack maybe is a little bit on the right track, but we don't know what's happened with Sophie. And there's still no word on Diana, this other very unresolved, very highly tense, in my mind, domestic situation. So I hope it doesn't portend anything for those. I hope it doesn't portend anything about the actual mission here. No, right. I mean... It's, it's been a very, very long time since we had firsthand anything about Diana. And I, like you, Mike, I'm still got the, the situation with Sophie in the back of my mind here. Now, there's, there's clearly lots brewing for Jack to take care of in the present and in the moment here. He's got his plans gelling, coming into place here after he's had this first contact with an actual slaver. He's learned about this invasion of Ireland, and presumably he's going to have to build some kind of a plan as to how he's going to intercept the French squadron and what his tactics might be given the resources that he has in the squadron here. We have this hint that if he stays too long on the slave mission, stays in these unpredictable winds, he might actually end up wind bound and miss the French squadron altogether. And given the whole anticlimax of his voyage to South America, it's not impossible that that's how O'Brien's going to treat us, right? We might all just go, oh, and they would be calmed for six weeks and that was it. So are we going to get that or are we not? 
Jack has clearly responded to this terrible firsthand experience of slavery with some extra zeal and with a newfound motivation to continue this first part of the mission. How is that going to play out? How far will he take that? What's his plan for this deal with anchoring the Nancy in the roads of Freetown and uh, and the Powder Hoy? How is that going to play out? I guess maybe there's one way to find out, Mike. Yep. What do you say in next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. clearly worried that loose links sorry <laughs> although he's clearly worried that loose lips can sink ships he also knows that he needs to get with his command and get these captains talking to each other